Our sermon today is taken from Romans 1, verse 8 to 17. This is the word of God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we are lost without you. But you, in your grace, has sent your word to us to guide us and to give us knowledge about yourself that we may see your beauty and goodness. Father, uh, today the text is a weighty text, Lord, that has deep implications for our life. Be with your servant, Lord, as he attempts to communicate this truth to your church. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will be among us, that we're divided and not united physically, but we're united in the Spirit and in our love for you. Show us your beauty, Lord, and captivate us with the cross that we may change and be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you look at the history of Christianity, we'll come across the stories of some truly remarkable human beings who dare to do some incredible things. One of the blessings that I had during this quarantine season was to be able to watch this series called Epic with some members of the church over Zoom. And in this series, um, this theologian named Tim Challies traveled all around the world and taught us about these missionaries who did some of these incredible things. So we learned about people like Martin Luther, who risked his life and dared to oppose the most powerful institution in the world at that time, to defend the integrity of gospel truth and to reform God's church, the bride and body of Christ himself. And William Wilberforce, who opposed his own country that had an economy based on zero-cost labor and the commodification of human life because he wanted to restore dignity to the image of God by abolishing the institution of slavery. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was killed by the indigenous tribes of the Amazon rainforest, but then she returned to the very tribes that killed her husband because they too needed the gospel. And Amy Carmichael, for example, who spent 55 years in ministry in India, undermined the majority religion there to save young girls from being forced into prostitution for religious reasons. Another pretty remarkable guy of this sort is this Paul guy. You, you may have heard of him. And he was a guy who was initially an enemy of God's people and persecuted them until he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Then he became someone who dared to oppose the, the faith he grew up in 
believe in and defended zealously up to that point. Paul dared to oppose the most powerful empire in the history of the world and was stoned, beaten, imprisoned, shit-wrapped, bitten by a snake, and finally beheaded for the sake of the gospel. I don't know about you, but if I met Paul and some of these people, I would be asking them, what on earth were you thinking? How did you come to show such disregard for your own life and serve the Lord like that? Our passage today gives us insight into exactly this. So we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans, and today we're on chapter 1, verse 7 to 17. Last week, we looked at the preamble to Romans, where Paul introduces himself and his message to the church. This week, we're looking at the first paragraph of Paul's message to the Romans. And if you remember your high school or uh, university English classes, good first paragraphs tell you the purpose of the essay, touches on the things that will be talked about in the essay, and ends with a thesis statement. Such is the case here. But this is why we, we can't go into every doctrine that this passage touches on. We wouldn't be able to do justice to it. And we're going to get to it eventually if you stay tuned. So this Lord's Day, I want to focus on the main point of this section of Romans. Right? Paul's explanation about his motivations for ministry. And we see in the passage that Paul had three things in his engine that kept him going. So our three points. First, a longing for the unity of the gospel community. Two, an obligation for a universal gospel need. And three, a boldness from gospel power. One, a longing for the unity of the gospel community. Two, an obligation to the universal gospel need. And three, a boldness from gospel power. So point one, a longing for the unity of the gospel community. In order to unpack what Paul is saying here, we need to have a clearer picture of the church in Rome that he was writing to. It was a church that Paul didn't plan himself. He's never personally met this church before. And it was a church that was internally divided. Why? In Acts 18, we know that at some point, the Jews were expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius. And then he let them back in a few years later. What did this, what this did was it changed the culture of the church. It became culturally a non-Jewish church. So when the Jewish Christians came back to Rome, the church had a lot of disagreements. They were divided. They disagreed on how to live as Christians, what kind of stuff they could eat, how to prepare um, for the Sabbath and the circumcision and so on. So Paul writes this letter that has the fullest explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is in the Bible in order to unite the church for gospel ministry. Interesting how Paul's strategy for uniting the church is not to water down theology or taking doctrine lightly, but to explain it more clearly. So notice how Paul addresses this divided and internally conflicted church in its greeting in verse 7. He says that they are loved by God and called to be saints. See what Paul did there? He starts off by immediately cooling off the heated point of tension that is in the church. See, the church was confused about their identity. Were they basically Jewish or not? They thought that their culture was the most basic identity about their Christianity. That it is their culture that should inform them how to live as Christians and how to treat one another. But Paul puts all on equal ground by establishing what is our actual identity, the most basic truth about who we are as Christians. The first thing we need to remember when we meet a fellow Christian, that this one is beloved by God and called to be a saint, just like I am. Brothers and sisters, this is a crucially important thing to remember. And interactions with our fellow Christians. For too long, the bride of Christ has been marred 
by schisms and divisions. When two groups of people who are both loved by God and called to be saints treat each other as enemies, publicly shaming each other from the pulpit or on Instagram, speaking harshly against our brothers and sisters, and even calling each other heretics both publicly and privately. Not that there are, there are no heretics, but it's a serious charge not to be taken lightly. Right? We are even envious of each other or constantly trying to pridefully one-up each other, being suspicious of one another, thinking that we're trying to steal each other's sheep as if this is some game or contest to see who is the holiest saint with the best ministry. And friends, we reform people are some of the worst perpetrators of this. Pointing out flaws in other churches and calling them heretics almost recreationally. Not that. Some of these theological differences are crucially important. This is why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to iron out some of the things in their theology. But what this teaches us is the correct posture that we should come, we should approach our fellow Christians with when we disagree. Are we approaching them as heretics and false prophets? Or are they part of God's family who he died for, adopted, and loves, and are called to live in holiness, just like we are? Since Paul regards them as the beloved call saints of God, notice how he treats them in verse 8 to 12. Paul is genuinely thankful for them, unceasingly praying for them, and wants to be mutually edifying to them. It is only when we've internalized that our fellow Christian brothers and sisters are beloved by God and called to holiness can we stop envying them, being suspicious of them, being harshly critical to them while looking down on them, but instead give thanks to God for them. Because we know it is ultimately God who is at work, despite being imperfect as we are. Because we understand that Christ died for them too. And the Holy Spirit is working in and through them in the process of conforming them into the image of Christ, leading them to glory as He is leading us. And so our hearts can be thankful for who they are, thankful to God for their salvation and growth in their faith, and thankful to God for their ministry. And flowing out of this thankful heart, we will be led to pray for them. Not only praying for God, that God will change them or cause them to repent. Not praying prayers for God's judgment to come upon them, or to punish them, but actively thanking God for them, wanting them to be blessed and hoping that they too will continue to advance the gospel and glorify God. So look at verse 11. What does Paul pray for? He asks God to give him the opportunity to go to them so that he can impart upon them spiritual gifts. Now the word for gifts here is charisma. It is a gift that is given by God through the Spirit. And it, this does not mean that Paul wants to go there and teach them to speak in tongues or, or, or prophesy or anything like that. But Paul wants to bless the church in Rome with the gift God has given him. And we know from verse 15 that Paul, what Paul is referring to with this gift is preaching the gospel to them. In other words, Paul unceasingly asked God to have the opportunity to serve them with the gospel that they may be strengthened too. You see, because Paul serves God in his spirit, meaning from his innermost being, and because God loves this church, Paul also loves this church. Paul's heart is to build them up and not tear them down. So look at verse 12. He asks this God so that his own faith may be strengthened by their faith. Paul understands the unity of all believers here. 
he sees that there is no distinction between his own good and the good of the church. It's not a contest or a zero-sum game in his mind. So ministry for Paul is a mutually edifying relationship. So Paul prays for the opportunity to personally be involved in blessing them. He's not only praying for God to guide and protect them and correct them when they're wrong, but Paul wanted to be God's hand of blessing to them. So this is why, brothers and sisters, participating in ministry and being in fellowship with other believers is important. For as we encourage one another, God used this process for our own growth and encouragement. This is the dynamics of the gospel community, how it works. So the relationship between Paul and the Roman church is not strictly professional, like a, a consultant and, and a client, but it is deeply personal and spiritual. Because Paul saw who they are in the eyes of God, out of his faithfulness to God, Paul is thankful for God's beloved called saints and is praying for them, longing to give of himself to them and to bless them with the gospel while allowing them to bless him. Now imagine where the church would be if we could be like Paul and see all Christians this way. Thankful, prayerful, fellowship of believers who are encouraging each other with the gospel together being conformed into the image of Christ. Doesn't that sound great? But this is not all. Paul's motivation is not only inward and exclusive towards those who are already in the gospel community, but is also outward and exclusive. I mean inclusive. Right? Because he has an obligation to the universal gospel need. So point two, an obligation to the universal gospel need. So in verse 13 to 15, we see that Paul deeply cares for the church in Rome and longs to personally bless them, but he hasn't gotten the opportunity to do that yet. And the reason why Paul hasn't done this yet is the same reason why he wants to go there, right? Because the gospel is needed everywhere and by everyone. He says in verse 13, there is a harvest among them as well as the other Gentiles. A harvest is a metaphor that Jesus himself uses to refer to converts. God's beloved, who is calling, but is not yet part of his flock, not yet part of the gospel community. God's straying sheep that he is gathering back. And the Lord of the harvest himself says, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. So we who have heard, understood, and received this gospel are these laborers who are sent into the harvest. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen us to gather the harvest. That God has sown the seed of faith in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he gave us the privilege of reaping what he has sown. What we can't miss here is the emphasis on the universality of the need and the impartiality of Paul's ministry. That there are those whom God called not only in Rome, the cosmopolis of its day, kind of like New York today, with the church that has the world-famous faith, but there are those who belong to God in the less glamorous and sophisticated places, among the unreached and uneducated people of the world. This is what Paul means, that his obligation is both the Greek and barbarian, the wise and foolish. You see, Greek was the lingua franca of its time, the language of business and commerce, that's used, and it's also used in academia. And it was the English of its time. While barbarian is a derogatory term to describe non-Greek speakers, because to the Greeks, their language sounds like bar, 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 thus barbarian. Likewise, 
The Greeks also, also considered themselves to be wise and sophisticated because of their high art, philosophy, and culture, whereas the rest of the world were considered uncivilized and foolish or barbaric. So Paul was directly addressing the racism and cultural supremacist tendencies of his day, saying that there is absolutely no room for that in the gospel community. Because no matter who we are, where we live, how, how smart or sophisticated we think we are, we need the gospel as much as anyone else and just like everyone else. As such, in verse 14, Paul says that he has an obligation to them too. Not as if he's some, under some kind of contract or he's forced to, but the word obligation here means that he owes a debt, right? That he thinks he would be unfaithful if he did not preach the gospel to them too. And how does he have this sense of duty? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about, doesn't it? The most basic truth about our identity as God's people. You see, Paul realizes that everywhere, among all people, there are those who are loved by God and called to be saints. So Paul feels that he owes it to the God who he loves and serves with his spirit, the God who out of his grace called a self-righteous Pharisee who persecuted the church to labor in his harvest, to go out to those whom God loves and personally extend to them God's call to be saints so that they too can be included in this thankful, prayerful, and mutually encouraging gospel community. Now, the application here is not necessarily be like Paul, quit your job, sell everything you have, and go preach the gospel in the jungles. If you feel strong calling to that, God bless you. But what Paul is encouraging us to do here is to be woke. Hashtag gospel woke. Meaning that we are to be aware of what God is doing amongst all people in the world. That God is now calling people from all nations, tribes, and tongues to be saints. That there are people who you work with in your friendship group, people who work for you, and even people in your family who are not yet part of a gospel community, but nonetheless is also loved by God and called to be saints. People who are still now dead in their sins and without hope, but God is calling them to live by His Spirit and is bringing them to glory with us. And we, we are privileged. We Christians have been blessed beyond all measure. By God's infinite grace, we have heard God's call and responded to it. So will we again res respond to the Lord's call to labor in His harvest? Or will we neglect God's beloved? Make no mistake, friends, this is neither an easy or simple task. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of resources, a lot of emotional investment, a lot out of us. This is why burning out in ministry is a very real thing. In seminary, you were told something like half of the people who work in full-time ministry don't remain in ministry after five years. So how can we prevent ourselves from burnout and keep going? How did Paul keep going? Because he had a boldness from gospel power. The third point, a boldness from gospel power. So in verse 16 to 17, we see the thesis statement of the book of Romans, a summary of what Paul will elaborate as he goes through the book. And he communicates this by telling us his heart, by telling us the ultimate, most fundamental reason for why Paul preaches the gospel, the fuel for his ministry. 
So he starts in verse 16 by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? Well, because in his time, it was not really socially acceptable to believe in the gospel. His native Jewish community saw Paul as a heretic, blasphemer, and a traitor to believe in the fact that a lonely man like Jesus Christ could be the Messiah, the one true God in the flesh. The Greek world that Paul was ministering to saw him as a fool, someone who believed in strange, irrational myths, to believe that a dead man can return to life. And it's not too different, are they, right? Believing in the gospel is also a rational and a shameful thing in the eyes of today's world. Because the gospel takes power away from us. Because it might require us to sacrifice our ambitions and the culture's ideas of success for the sake of faithfulness. Because it forces us to reorient our lives around what God wants and not what we want. And following Jesus makes us lose control over our lives because we no longer can set up our lives exactly as we want it to go. But we must give the controls to God for the sake of obedience, and we don't really get to plan our lives anymore, and it makes us fully dependent on God instead of our own power. You see how antithetical this is to, to today's culture that says, if it is to be, it is up to me. And also, living by the gospel is uncomfortable. We may need to sacrifice the things that we love, that give us pleasure, that we depend on to make us feel happy, and take us to situations and places that are awkward, painful, and tiring. It does not allow us to be comfortable with our sin, but forces us to confront it and face it. You know, like who would want to do that? And so communicating the gospel might mean that we would be outcast in the world because we will think and live differently from the world that does not believe in the gospel. It puts a target in our backs and opens us up to be labeled as irrational, bigoted, close-minded, self-righteous, judgmental, cowardly, moralistic, and so on. Because indeed, the message of the cross is weakness and foolishness to those who are perishing. That Paul, despite everything he suffered, he countered up the cost and considered all else loss, and found his wealth in the cross. How? So Paul continues to elaborate why the gospel gave him so much boldness. Because it is the power of salvation. So we might be th thinking that salvation only means that we're not going to go to hell for the bad things that we've done, like some kind of after life insurance policy. Now this is certainly included but it's not only a future thing. Right? It means that God now has forgiven us for all our sins. That there is no more conflict between us and God. It also means that God has now already freed us from the power of sin. That we do not have to be slaves to our sinful desires. But we can live free from sin and its punishment. It also means that God gives us grace now to be healed from our sins. And to personally know and be guided by Him as our loving Father, so we don't have to fear when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we will walk and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the gospel is the power because it is God's way of making salvation available to everyone. No matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done, you can receive salvation.
but it is conditional. To receive it, you must believe. And this universal inclusiveness in the gospel has been attested for in history. This is what Paul means when he says to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Not that the Jews had dibs on salvation, but it is talking about how the message of the gospel was first revealed to the Jews through the Holy Scripture and then taken by the apostles to the Greek world and now is being taken to the ends of the earth, to Jakarta, to Bandung, to Bali, to Papua, and it will not be stopped until all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue calls upon the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the gates of heaven is now open to all. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this fact is what drove Paul's ministry in Romans 10. He explains his logic really simply. How can they call on the Lord if they have not believed? And how can they believe in him who had, who've they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And who will preach to them unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But why is it? Why is it if we call in the name of the Lord, we will be saved? Verse 17 teaches us, because in it, talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, the biblical concept of righteousness includes two things. First, is that God always does what is just and right. And second, that God is faithful to his promises. That on the one hand, God, who is truly just and holy, cannot be consistent if he allows sin to go unpunished. So we, as creatures who willingly and consistently rebel against him and to do what is right in our own eyes, must be punished for God to be just. And the just punishment for this act of treason against the king of creation is death. But on the other hand, he is also a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who has set aside a people for himself for the sake of his own glory, to be his holy nation. And he has promised to never forsake them and to restore them to himself so that they can glorify and enjoy him forever. Now how is this revealed? That though we are deserving of the punishment of death because of our sins, God, in his infinite mercy, was faithful to his promises. So to satisfy his justice, God took flesh upon himself and was born as a human and lived among us. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life and was the only person who did not deserve to be punished. But Jesus suffered the punishment in our place. And because Jesus was faithful, God declared him righteous. And then, by His grace, God has put this righteousness on us, Jesus' righteousness, so that we do not have to perish for our sins because when the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin, but the righteousness of Christ. And because of this, we can become His chosen people and enjoy the fulfillment of His promises. So we don't have to die, but we can live to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In the person of Jesus Christ, God revealed how he can be just, how his justice is satisfied and his promises fulfilled. This is the message of the gospel. We receive this righteousness by faith. This is what Paul means 
And the phrase that's translated in the ESV as from faith for faith. It's a Greek way of saying faith from beginning to end, faith through and through, meaning that our justification is by faith alone. That we receive God's righteousness not because of anything we ever did, not through our good works, moral behavior, or religious activities, for it is impossible for us to do so by our own power, but it is because of God's grace alone. Because Jesus fulfilled the requirement of righteousness on our behalf. And by His grace, He has given us Jesus' righteousness that is alien to us, and the Holy Spirit has turned our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, so that we may have faith in Jesus and what he has done and believe and receive this salvation and live. And it is God's Spirit who will walk with us as we are being perfected into holiness and will ensure that our faith endures so that we will make it to the end, beginning and ending with faith, faith through and through, thus fulfilling what the prophet Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. Or perhaps a clearer and more accurate translation is the ones justified by faith shall live. Brothers and sisters, the gates of heaven is now open to all. Because it's not based on God or on our righteousness, God loves us, but it is because He loves us, He made us righteous. So anybody without any discrimination can receive the salvation. And, and walk through the pearly gates. So if you're like Paul, and by God's grace have been given the faith to believe, if the gospel is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, then we too can appreciate that those who believe in this gospel have been called and loved by God to be saints just like us. No matter how much we disagree or where they are in their faith. And we too can genuinely be thankful for them, unceasingly praying for them, and be motivated to shamelessly serve them with the gospel while being encouraged by their faith. And through the gospel, we too can have the boldness to answer God's call for laborers in His harvest and boldly preach the gospel to gather His straying sheep wherever and whoever they may be. But if you don't believe, or, or you're not sure, but you know that if God exists, then you might be in trouble, and you're worried that this punishment might be coming for you, you need the salvation, and you can have it. So consider this God's call to you. And my deepest hope, and the deepest hope of this church, is that you respond to Him, believe, and live. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are unworthy, Lord, of being called saints. We are unworthy of being considered righteous. But you sent your son to us to make us worthy, to make me worthy, a wretched sinner who constantly rebels against you Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to ingrain this gospel in my heart, in our hearts, that we may learn to see those whom you have called as your beloved children, as your saints, as our brothers and sisters, and that we may be motivated to go out to those who do not know you yet, to weep for them 
and call them back into your flock. For you have died for them too. And, you've, and you will cause them to live and bring them into glory, just like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.